The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Now, a new government review is set to result in a dramatic overhaul of laws governing conflicts of interest and ethics. It also recommends extra scrutiny for senior figures in public bodies like the ESB and uh, semi-states. But to get some insight and reaction, I'm joined now by the political editor with the Irish Examiner, Danny McConnell, the leader of the Labour Party, TD for Dublin Bay South, Ivana Batchik, and Liam Herrick, Executive Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Um, but good morning, one and all. Um, Danny McConnell, can you outline for us exactly what is proposed. Yeah, sure. So obviously on foot of recent controversies involving politicians, what we've seen now is is, is reviews uh, put forward by the Standards and Public Office, which basically makes it, it says that there should be a new regime essentially of how um, people should register uh, their declarations of interest and in order to avoid any sort of conflicts of interest. Now, they're not they're not only limiting this to politicians. They obviously have, have made a uh, play that, as you said in your introduction, that senior semi-state bodies are people who essentially are working in the employee of the state, they're not politicians, but senior officials should also have to declare any material conflicts of interest. Now, what we've seen is from the ESB, uh, kind of a, a, their response saying that this is not really appropriate for senior people in in, in a semi-state commercial entity. It, it's suitable for politicians, and ultimately, if it, if they do go down this road, it'll make the job of filling their senior positions mm-hmm. in this you know, very important semi-state all the more difficult. Yeah. Now, easy for them to say on foot of you know their privileged monopoly type position that they occupy, and also as well, you know, <clears throat> you know, many people would probably say not not give them you know much uh, sucker given the fact that they, you know there's a company that made record profits last year at a time what's when, that when got to do with, what's that got to do with ethics profits well it's got well profit has a lot to do i suppose you'd have to say in terms of their monopoly position in the in the market you would have to say that they uh they do they, it's only right and proper that they should be uh, transparent and accountable and you know material conflicts of interest should be made public okay um just to continue this uh, discussion with uh, ivana batrick uh, what say you ivana about uh, these these proposals uh, well, good morning, Pat, and thank you for the invitation. And first, just to acknowledge the horrific loss of life that we're hearing so much about in Syria and in Turkey. Just awful to think of, of that happening and, and uh, uh, each day bringing more bad news there. So thoughts and sympathy for the all affected. Uh, Pat, referring then to the review that we've seen, the first thing I would say, and certainly all of us in Labour are uh, uh, pointing out, is that this is long overdue. This uh, report into ethics, uh, the statutory framework for ethics in public office. This report has been promised for a long time. It was completed, we understand, in December. It was only just published yesterday. We absolutely support uh, the recommendations within it, but I must say, Pat, the recommendations themselves amount to an endorsement of Labour's own uh, proposal. Okay, that's the political point, but, over, but are you well, in no, no, favour? No, no. If you look at the report, if you look through the report, you'll see that it consistently refers to the Public Sector Standards Bill brought forward by Brendan Howland in 2015, supported mm. by government, but never progressed. So we're over seven years waiting for okay. the necessary reform. So, in other words, what the report is saying is nothing we don't know already. Okay, now, now what to say to you about the extension yes. of uh, these kind of restrictions, or uh, I suppose rules and regulations, to ESB and other semi-states? If you do it for one semi-state, you do it for all. Uh, so the DAA, the Board of Mona, uh, and so on. Um, so what say you to, to those kind of interventions. 
Well, I think those recommendations have to be seen in the context of the entirety of the report, because what the report is proposing, very importantly, is three things. To consolidate and streamline the, the ethical standards for all elected officials and senior public servants and indeed uh, elected members of the Oireachtas and of local authorities. Currently, there's a very complex, cumbersome, but ultimately toothless process in place uh, overseen by SIPO, the Standards in Public Office uh, entity. And what the report says first is let's consolidate and streamline, have a principles-based approach where there's a code of conduct for all involved. So that's important. But within that, and this is the relevant point for the ESB and other semi-states, there's a tiered approach. So in other words, the highest requirements, the highest level of disclosure requirements will attach to ministers. That, that makes sense. You know, ministers have executive power. That's cabinet ministers. And there's then a tiered or graded uh, set of disclosure requirements. So the chairs and CEOs of semi-states will be below that. And I think that's important. You know, that's the first thing, consolidation streamline, give it a, with this tiered proportionate approach to disclosure. Secondly, give cycle power to initiate investigations on its own behalf and to impose the sanctions we've just heard about is in, to include fixed penalty fines. I think that's very important. And, and would that, that apply, again, has- getting back to the ESB and its reservations and uh, uh, the, the other semi-states don't seem to have demurred, uh, would SIPO then have power over the ESB? Well, let's see what the detail is. And, and, you know, let's say the report is very detailed. It's 88 pages and uh, there's a good deal of uh, reference reference in it, as I've said, to our own public sector standards bill. I think the fine capacity might have to be you know, restricted to some extent to the to elected representatives. But, you know, I think the general principle that there's a graded approach or a tiered approach to disclosure requirements would make sense and I think would, would resolve mm. the concerns of the EFB. But let's just say this also. You know, the EFB made 375 million in profits last year. It is a semi-state. It is important that we see, uh, for example, see, you know, secretaries general of government departments, assistant secretaries, high-level civil and public servants being subject to, this, this, to, to disclosure requirements. And I should say, Pat, the third aspect of the report, which is equally important, is to expand the levels of disclosure for some categories to include, for example, uh, significant liabilities or debt and to include, crucially, the use of insider information for material benefits. So, these are, I mean, I suppose the other thing to say is, you know, in, pri- in the private sector, if you look at the company's regime, uh, and I used to, you know, uh, t- teach some of this, if you look at the company's regime, you'll see very, you know, very specific rules and requirements around directors and private limited companies too. So this is not a novel idea that there should be disclosure and transparency, particularly around insider information. And I think when we've seen through the Mahaman Tribunal, the Moriarty Tribunal, and again, the report makes extensive reference to those, we've seen um, recommendations for reform there that have not yet been implemented. We've seen recommendations from international bodies like the Council of Europe, Greco, Group of States Against Corruption, saying that we do need to bring our ethical standards, laws into line with that. And as I say, we in Labour have proposed this over seven years ago. That bill remains, if you like, in a sort of limbo. And this report refers extensively and approvingly to that. the, The business of families... Um, it's an interesting one because, you know, uh, are you your brother's keeper? Are you your uh, spouse's keeper? Um, Individualisation applies in matters of tax, for example. Um, the idea that uh, somebody's brother, sister, son, daughter uh, in any of these categories, be they a semi-state uh, board member or whatever it might be, that their brother, sister, uncle, aunt uh, would have to declare uh, an interest in all their business activities. Uh, and that would be free to uh, for everyone to peruse. Would that not be a bridge too far? 
I think it would, to be honest, and that's not what this says. Uh, what the report is recommending is that there would be additional disclosure requirements which would be confidential, in other words, not publicly accessible, relating to interests of a spouse, civil partner, or child, that relate, that's limited, in other words, and only to those interests that could materially influence public functions and subjects. Okay, to, now, now, now uh, Ivana, so, just, so I, think, I want to yes. clarify all this because nowadays there's a fashion to not get married at all. Uh, no civil partnership uh, there available to to heterosexual couples. Uh, I'm not sure how it stands now, uh, given we have marriage equality and all the rest of it. But anyway, you can have loads of people living together and you can have one party in the household who's got all sorts of interests, but unless they're married, they would not be covered by this kind of legislation, I presume. No, spouse, civil partner, Pat, or child. No, but if you're just living together, just having fun together, uh, you've been together for 10 years, you may or may not have children, um, (laughs) you go about your merry corrupt way, untouched by this, um, because... Well, this is part of the detail, Pat, that I think, you know, needs to be, uh, we need to see from government, but certainly a civil partner, I think, if we're, you know, one one thing I would say, Pat, is that we do need to have laws recognising long-term cohabitation in in Labour. We've been, again, pushing for that to happen. I'm hoping we'll see, indeed, a referendum later this year that will broaden the definition of family beyond the family-based marriage. So I think that is a separate issue. So, so hang on, no, no, I'm I'm a bit hung up on this business of individualisation. You know, you treat it as an individual for tax purposes, but when it comes to the state prying into your business, you're not treated as an individual. Why should any person who just happens to be hooked up with uh, someone who is a politician, a councillor, uh, a member of a semi-state management team or a a chairperson of it, why should they have to, you know, divulge anything? I mean, GDPR alone should protect them from that kind of intrusion. Well, first of all, I entirely agree with you that it's not anomalous, it's inconsistent for the state to recognise cohabitation in some areas but not in others and indeed you know, your listeners will be aware of the Johnny O'Mara case, it's very, the awful case where a, a man who's who, uh, a father whose partner very sadly died leaving him with, you know, effectively a widow of children and yet the state would not recognise their relationship mm-hmm. uh, on, uh, in order to provide him with, with, uh, uh, with the normal benefit that would apply to a widower, somebody who'd been married in that situation. So it is inconsistent and it is unfair currently that cohabitants are not treated in the same way as married couples in, in instances where it might result in the state uh, having to provide benefits. That's wrong. That's the first thing. The second point then to make is again it is about balance. I do entirely agree with you. We need to ensure that we don't place disproportionate and unnecessary burdens on family members of those in public life or indeed in senior public office. However, we do also, I think, need to recognise that where there's an interest for a very very close relative, and I think, again, we'll have to see how the government's going to approach this, Uh, but we put it as, you know, this spouse or child that has material, the interest of material interest in the subject matter of functions or decisions. Uh, and should I say, can I say, Pat, also, it's a graded level of uh, disclosure requirements depending, mm-hmm. again, on the level of seniority, whether the cabinet minister clearly the higher level uh, in respect of the spouse uh, compared to, for example, a, a, a councillor at local level. So, look, mm-hmm. I think so, so just to expand, you know, you talk about uh, the ESB and people like that who are uh, state employees uh, as semi-state uh, companies. Uh, what about companies that get a big contract from the state? For example, BAM, the contractors in the, Nash- in the pediatric hospital. Would all the senior management there uh, and their spouses, uh, the, the chairperson of the board, whether it's based in the Netherlands or wherever it might be, would they have to come clean about their investments? 
Well, Pat, let's not forget that there's very, very particular rules governing those sort of state contracts. We've got at EU level very rigorous procurement rules around uh, big contracts for company for private companies. So I think it's a separate regime. I don't, I don't think that that is appropriately dealt with under the cycle regime. What I would say. No, I'm, I want to, I want to, to search for consistency. In other words, if there is a general suspicion that most people are corruptible, which seems to be the underlying theme of this bill, uh, politicians are corruptible, pe- members of semi-state boards are cor- corruptible. Um, if there's a genuine belief that that is the case, well then surely anyone who might be in receipt of a big government contract involving millions and millions and millions of our taxpayers' euro, that, that to be consistent, they and their family members would also have to disclose. Well, first of all, Pat, I think the reality is most people are, ethical, are entirely ethical. People have integrity, people in public life. And no, but the presumption is that everyone is corruptible, which it may be well, a, a very sound presumption. I think, if I may say, I think the purpose of having a statutory, in other words, a legislative framework for ethics, for ethics in public life, this is accepted across, uh, you know, international regimes across all countries. And indeed, one, you know, interesting aspect of the review is its review of international regimes, regimes in other countries on this, in this regard. And again, you know, where is Ireland and wanting? That's important. So I think, you know, there's a recognition this is a positive mm-hmm. measure. We bring in codes of conduct for a reason, to ensure that high standards are maintained, but not because of sort of inherent suspicion about corruptibility. You know, we put forward a very clear set of recommendations for reform. These have been entirely endorsed as far as we can see in this government's report and it's now, now time to see government action. I want to just um, to give you some breaking news which you might want to react to. The Northern Ireland Protocol is lawful according to the UK Supreme Court. Um, the protocol, as we know, tr- creates that border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK and it is obviously being reviewed at the moment in the negotiations. But it had been challenged by unionist politicians who said it breached the Act of Union and the Northern Ireland Act. Um, the arguments have been rejected by the High Court and the Court of Appeal. Well, now the Supreme Court in the UK has said that the protocol is lawful. That, thank you. Thank you for the hush. I hadn't seen that. Obviously. It's just come out just uh, moments ago. And I look forward to reading the judgment. But I will say this: I welcome. You know, my first reaction is to welcome it and to say that I think all of us here in Ireland will see this as providing a necessary uh, and important impetus towards uh, resolution at political level of the issues around the protocol. So I think mm. the judgment will be helpful. Obviously, you'll we'll have to read it in detail, but the, but it sounds yeah. as if the outcome of it will certainly be helpful yeah. in enabling the EU and Britain to reach a resolution that will ensure the maintenance of peace on this island. I mean, that, of course, for all of us is the critical yeah. thing. That we it, it will certainly inform those uh, ongoing discussions, that's uh, for sure, and maybe make the more, path more a little path. bit easier. Yeah, I, think it will, I think it will smooth the path towards resolution. And we're hearing some very positive uh, news indeed you know, in terms of the negotiations as we lead up to the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement this Easter. So mm. I think that is very welcome and, uh, and I'm sure it will be welcomed by negotiators at EU level as well. Okay, uh, Ivana, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, listening to those conversations, Danny is still with us because I have another question for him. Um, but Liam Herrick, Executive Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, what do you make of the, uh, these ethical proposals? Um, 
Good morning, Pat. I think, as has been laid out by Ivana there, I mean, they're, they're long overdue in that the Standard Public Office Commission has been flagging the need for these kind of changes for many, many years. There was legislation proposed in 2015, which didn't get anywhere. And the Council of Europe Greco Committee on Corruption has been, uh, as far back as 2014, flagging the urgent need for reforms here. So we, we have a system that isn't fit for purpose. And in particular, the enforcement mechanisms that we've had under the Standard and Public Office Commission have been predominantly reactive, that they, they come into action where there's a complaint yeah. made rather than actually being proactive and ensuring that the rules have been complied with on an ongoing basis. They themselves have said this. So it's, it's unfortunate that we've been this long waiting, and it only yeah. seems that when there's specific crises at the moment that are stimulating a bit of urgency okay. around it. So, so the idea that they could initiate their own investigations, maybe on foot of suspicion or maybe a whistleblower or whatever, uh, some might see it as a snooper's charter, but you don't. No, no, I don't think there's any question of a snooper's charter. It's a question of actually just enforcing the laws that are there. And I mean, there, there are areas, for example, on the lobbying register at the moment where they're quite proactive at one level in that organizations that are involved in lobbying. Um, if you're late with your lobbying return, mm-hmm. if you omit, a le- you know, uh, it's clear that they will fine you and so on. The difficulty is that there's, there's possibly a large range of activity going on that people are not reporting and they don't have the capacity to go and find it. Uh, I think there's certainly the suggestion that there may be a lot of lobbying activity which just isn't registered. And if people aren't registered as lobbyists in the first place, the Standard Public Office Commission doesn't have much capacity to go after them. So we do definitely need to strengthen the systems. The points that are made uh, in the article today by the ESB at the same time, are legitimate points. And I think, as has been said, it's a question of balance. The balance between, on the one hand, trying to ensure transparency, and transparency is absolutely essential to deal with corruption around public funds. And on the other hand, you know, people do have rights. Their families have rights, individuals have rights to privacy. Uh, This was an issue that was before the European Court of Justice in November of last year. And there was a ruling in the Court of Justice which said that uh, the register of beneficial owners of companies where people had to register, uh, anybody with a 25% interest in a company had to be registered on a public register, that that was disproportionate, that that was too far. Uh, And I think that this is a live question at the moment at the European level about whether we can get the balance correct between the information that's necessary to ensure dealing with corruption, but isn't disproportionate in forcing people to share information about their personal finances that maybe is beyond what is necessary. Um, so you sympathise with the ESB's argument that it might be difficult to employ top people if they're, they're themselves and their families, uh, sons, daughters, whatever, uh, their assets are going to be disclosed, however confidentially, because, you know, who knows what that is these days. Well, I think there's a big difference path there, and Ivan is touching this, between mechanisms by which the information has to be declared and can be looked at by an appropriate regulator, let's say, on one hand, and on the other hand, a publicly published register of beneficial interests. That was what was at stake in the Court of Justice decision. I mean, there's no doubt... Do you mean to say you'd be in favour of a private register, but not a public one? No, I, I think that it might be gradated. I think the point that was being made was that, for example, for government ministers or for perhaps chairpersons or chief executives of semi-state companies, which of course can be in charge of public contracts 
worth billions, uh, both within this jurisdiction and elsewhere, that it may be appropriate at the most senior level where the responsibilities are higher, mm. but it may not be proportionate if you go further down. The devil is in the detail with this, Pat, yeah. but I mean, they, they are flagging an issue that is very live, and it is a question about getting the balance right between what is yeah. necessary to achieve and, the state. And just going back to the point I was making with Ivana about individuals, I mean, are you your brother's keeper? Are your spouse's keeper? Are you your roommate's keeper? Do you know what I mean? Um, you're in the thick and thin of perhaps winning or losing government contracts. Your partner is a farmer. Do you know how many acres do you have? Yep. Uh, that sort of thing. I mean, is that too intrusive? Well, I think we need to have a, a really bigger public debate about what do we mean by conflicts of interest in Ireland. I think we have a very poor track record in Ireland of effectively dealing with conflicts of interest in an open and transparent way. We've had a lot of difficulties with this over the years in many ways. In a small country, it's perhaps even more pronounced where there's probably more personal relationships between people in powerful positions than might be the case in another jurisdiction. But some public bodies are issuing very helpful guidelines now on what is a conflict of interest. For example, the Charities Regulator is working on this at the moment, um, and data protection areas are as well. So... We can't on one hand have it that people have to be the judge and jury themselves about whether they have a conflict of interest. Self-regulation is no regulation. It's not effective. Well, on the other hand... Had, that's what we had in Onboard Planola, where people were expected yeah. to declare that they had a brother or whatever involved in business or whether they themselves owned a bit of property here, there, or yon. Um, and it clearly didn't work. And, and I think the better view is that if you have a relationship which affects your capacity to make an independent judgment, then you objectively have a conflict. It's not for you to determine whether you do or not. And when you talk about people that had a, a familial connection, well, that's an objective fact. It isn't something that people can decide. Yeah, but I mean, ha- let's talk about that because I think it's interesting that if you have a familial uh, connection, son, daughter, brother, sister, spouse or whatever, who is an independent entity business-wise... Um, what business is of the state just because you happen to have a relationship familial to an individual to intrude upon that? Uh, and I'm taking the civil liberties point here. We are all individuals. Yeah. And, you know, what right does the state have to intrude into the, 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 the family member's assets one way or the other? Well, I think, Pat, you need to look at the mechanism by which this is dealt with. I mean, there's a principle at stake here. I mean, the state is making an assumption it won't do it for tax. It won't allow anything other than individualization in tax. But in terms of other stuff, the state decides that they have a right to intrude. But, Pat, Pat, the question here is about persons who are in positions that are making decisions affecting public funds or public policy and the quality of the decision that they're making. And conflict of interest policies in most areas of the public sector operate on the basis that you declare the interest, it's identified, and then it's recorded and dealt with. Now, it being recorded and dealt with doesn't mean that it's publicly displayed, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're prohibited from being involved in the decision. It just means that the conflict is Mm. identified, that it's known to the relevant people, and we we can in that way eradicate any suspicion that people are making decisions for the wrong reasons. And we have a long long history of that. Yeah, there's a Pandora's box here, uh, which is uh, they want judges perhaps to come under this uh, regime as well. Uh, Judges wear 
their barristers, handled many, many cases in uh, their lives, often are married to solicitors or barristers who in turn have handled many, many cases in their lives. You could come to a point where no one would be fit to try any case. Well, it's not necessarily the case that any of those things would prohibit somebody from taking on the role. But one of the issues that is relevant here, I think, for judges, other public office holders, ministers and TDs, is that up until now, significant debts and loans have not always needed to be declared. And I think it is a potential issue of conflict if a, if a government minister or even a Taoiseach, for example, had very large personal loans and was then involved, for example, in the regulation of banks. Similarly, for a judge, already it, it, it's, it's clearly notified that if a judge has a significant shareholding or commercial interest in a particular company, that he shouldn't be involved or she shouldn't be involved in adjudicating over them. But also, if they owed a significant amount of money to a financial institution, that's also relevant. I mean, it's about justice being done and justice being seen to be done so the public mm. can have confidence no, you, you take in my the point about the it's the familial thing that I'm kind of uh, really zoning in on and barristers being married to barristers, judges being married to judges, etc, etc. So many cases handled over the years, all of them being relevant because, uh, you know, a solicitor or a barrister will, or a barrister particularly will recuse him or herself from a case in which they may have represented yeah. the other side. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. It, it, it could make life very cumbersome, perhaps more honest, more straightforward and all the rest. But very, very I think it's proportionality passed, though. I mean, I think, you know, if you yourself have been directly involved, if a family member has been involved, but you've had no direct connection and it doesn't affect your ability to judge it, I think you try to design a system that's gradated in that way. I mean, one of the other issues that's at stake here, which I think also needs to be looked at, is the cooling off period between when public officers of various types hold roles that are important and have influence over commercial decision making and then leave that post and go into the commercial okay. sector. And I think that's something that we've also failed to deal with over the years. So there's a, there's a roadmap here for strengthening the system, but we will need to tease out these questions of proportionality around individual rights well, as well. this was our first go at it. We'll no doubt have other goes before this thing becomes uh, part of the machinery of government. Uh, Liam Herrick, thank you very much for joining us, Executive Director of the Irish Council for... The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk civil liberties.